You can open your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, and I'm going to do the same. We've been, uh, as was announced this morning, we've been in a series through the Kings and the Chronicles. And, uh, of course, we uh, seek to take a, a consecutive look. So last week we were in 1 Kings 18 a very uh, well-known passage, and um, this week we're in 1 Kings 19. You're going to find somewhat of a contrast, somewhat of a contrast between 1 Kings 18 and 1 Kings 19. And 1 Kings 18, you might have remembered, it's that very well-known story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And uh, you would recall there uh, a man, Elijah, who was standing tall and faithful to God's word and faithful to God's people, uh, a man who was bold and committed to the work of the Lord. You remember Elijah, he confronted the prophets of Baal. He boldly calls on the people of Israel to make a decision. Remember, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. He calls on the people boldly to make a decision. Eventually, and we could go through many different things, he calls down fire from heaven. Of course, the fire came from the Lord. But Elijah was the vessel that was there ministering to the people and Uh, orchestrating this tremendous confrontation between the God of heaven and the supposed God, Baal. And so he calls down fire from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice. You remember we had an illustration here last week as well, a visual illustration. Fire was called down from heaven. The sacrifice was consumed and the people were in awe. The people were, uh, I'm sure, shocked, stunned, amazed. And you remember what they chanted. They chanted, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And so Elijah was quite, quite a prophet in first Kings 18. But when we first come to first Kings 19, we're going to see somewhat of a contrast because the man who we see in chapter 18 as the one who fought we find in chapter 19 is the one who takes flight. He runs. In chapter 18, we see that he's commanding. In chapter 19, Elijah's running. In chapter 18, we see Elijah fervent and bold in prayer. But in chapter 19, we see Elijah falter in prayer. Imagine that, the prophet of God faltering in prayer. In chapter 18, we see him standing firm. Imagine that. There he was standing before the people of God, standing before the prophets of Baal, those false prophets. And he stood before them and he proclaimed a message. He called down fire from heaven and then he he uh, administrated the execution of some 450 prophets. He stood firm in chapter 18. But in chapter 19, we're going to find Elijah lying. Weary. And shaken. In chapter 18, we see Elijah reproving people by the word of God. But in chapter 19, we're going to find Elijah 
himself being reproved by the word of God. It's quite a contrast. Let's read uh, the verses from 1 Kings 19. It says this, And Ahab told Jezebel of all that Elijah had done. Of course, that's chapter 18. So Ahab brings the report to Jezebel, who was the queen, the wicked queen. And he tells her of all that Elijah had done. Also, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me. And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then, as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Then he said, this is the Lord speaking, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And verse 19 says, and so he departed from there. And I'm just going to stop the reading there because the rest of the chapter talks about the call of Elisha, which we're not going to get into this week. I found it difficult to outline the chapter. So I'm going to give you kind of some key words that hopefully help. There are three main characters here. Three main characters, Jezebel, Elijah and the Lord. 
Those are the three main characters in our passage. For Jezebel, it'll be a story of indignation and rebellion. For Elijah, a story of evasion and seclusion, depression and misconception. But for the Lord, it'll be a story of compassion and provision and revelation and direction. Three major characters. I was very encouraged by what was just presented by our brother from the Gideons. The power of the word of God, the power of the word of God to change lives. We're going to talk about this a little bit. But what greater miracle can be done than a changed life that God, the God of heaven, could actually change the heart of man? I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But we see here. Ahab comes and he tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. What a scene it was in chapter 18. You want to talk about miracles. This was a profound and majestic miracle. Fire raining down from heaven. Have you ever seen fire rain down from heaven? into a specific place to consume a specific sacrifice before a specific people. What a miracle. But Ahab comes and he tells Jezebel of all that Elijah had done. Many have commented that Ahab doesn't say that he told Jezebel about what Jehovah had done. For Ahab... It doesn't seem that he saw the Lord in this miracle. And certainly for Jezebel, she could care less. So he told her of all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Now, brothers, sisters, friends. Many times, oftentimes, we think. If only God would do some miraculous work from heaven. If only he would display in some miraculous way his power, his majesty. Certainly, the hearts of the people would turn. But here we have two individuals, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was an eyewitness. And he came and explained to Jezebel what had happened. But their hearts weren't turned. Their hearts weren't turned. The gospel requires repentance, repentance, a willingness to agree with God. And I dare say to you today that no miraculous work of God from the heavens, no display of power, majesty, miracle, whatever it may be, can change the heart of man like the word of God. Here they saw a tremendous scene a tremendous scene, but their hearts were not changed. What a wicked, wicked couple. What a wicked woman. Think for a moment in the scriptures. Think of men like Cain, who got to speak with God face to face after committing that atrocious act of murder. But it doesn't appear that his heart was changed. Men like Pharaoh, who would see God working from the heavens in a tremendous way, 
plague after plague after plague, things that are supernatural. They're beyond what we see in the natural world and happening in day-to-day life. Pharaoh got to see them all, but he would not repent. But he would not repent. Romans chapter 1 says this, and I'm going to read this to you because the words are so powerful. It says this in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Listen to these words. These are the words of Scripture. Because what may be known of God as manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Listen to this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The people in the world today, you and I and everyone else around us, has more than enough of a display of the power of God, of the existence of God. First Kings 18, how could you how could you ignore the existence and the majesty and the power of God? How could you not repent in a scene like that? How? But there was no repentance. And we live in a world today where there is more than enough of a display of God. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Romans 1 says that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Listen, I'm not saying I plumb the depths of this verse. But the world sees creation. You can't avoid it. You're a creation. I'm a creation. The trees, the stars, the world sees creation. Creation begs a creator. But many in the world want nothing to do with the creator. It's not a matter of his existence because it's so obvious. It's so obvious that there is a God, that there is a creator that has been uh, uh, involved in this creation. But it's a matter of repentance. It's a matter of repentance. Will you bow the knee to the one who is creator God? That's the question. It's never a question of existence. Oh, I know that they argue existence. They argue existence. And what a people it is. Have you ever noted a people who are so committed, vehemently committed to the non-existence of someone. Many today have made it their goal, their purpose, their identity is that they're atheists. They say their purpose is found. The purpose of their existence is found in the non-existence of God. Isn't that a wonder? And you listen to them speak and they vehemently deny the existence of God. Why? Because it's an issue of morality. It's an issue of repentance. They do not want to bow the knee. And neither did Jezebel. And neither did Ahab. They did not want to repent from their wickedness and receive the Lord. There was more than enough of a display. More than enough. So Christians, don't be discouraged. Don't be disheartened. Because sometimes my heart says the same thing. Lord, please do something from the heavens to show 
But God has done more than enough. It's a matter of repentance. And Jezebel would not repent. She wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. What a place. And so she threatens Elijah. She threatens Elijah and she says, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them about this time tomorrow. She said, you slew the prophets, now I'm going to slay you. This was vengeance. This was a threat. And so we go from Jezebel to this man, Elijah. What would he do? How would the bold and often brash and powerful Elijah respond to this woman? It says in verse 3, and when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. He ran for his life. And went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I found a little bit of a struggle as to how to approach Elijah in this situation. His life was threatened. It's easy for me to read back on the scriptures and say, you know, Elijah, what are you doing fearing man? Or in this case, what are you doing fearing this woman? And certainly, certainly from the text before us, we can stand firm that this was not one of the highlights in Elijah's life. That's for sure. Now, how many stones am I going to cast at him for running from this woman? I wasn't there between him and the Lord, I don't know, but I seek to learn from it. She threatened his life and he ran. One thing I noted is this. Elijah ran and then he prayed. Elijah ran and then he prayed. But Elijah should have prayed before he ran. He should have prayed before he ran He should have been willing to communicate with the Lord God of heaven, who had just rained fire down from the sky, albeit his life was threatened. And so we find a man, a prophet of God, who's discouraged and depressed and despondent. Can I just say to you today, we already heard it quoted from James chapter 5, Elijah was a man of like passions like you and I. Uh, 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 he He was just like you and I as was Moses and Abraham and so forth. God does not hide in scriptures the failures of his servants. He just doesn't. King David, Abraham, all the way down the line, God will not hide the failures of his servants. And so we can take courage in that, to recognize that life is hard at times. Things are difficult at times. Life can be very hard. Even Elijah found it that way to such a point that he was despondent. He he seemed to think that his job was done. Lord, it's enough. Just take my life. Many have noted, and it's worth noting, that Elijah didn't take his own life. He He didn't take it into his own hands. But he did get to the point where he said, Lord, if you will, just take my life. He was to that point. Life can be very difficult. And we're going to come to some words a little bit later that are, I find, very profound. Here is a man who ran for his life, 
but then asked the Lord to take his life. It seemed that this man was to such a degree weary and overwhelmed that he came to a place that he wasn't thinking clearly, wasn't doing as he ought, wasn't thinking as he ought. I will say that I'm glad to see that he did cry out to the Lord. At least he cried out to the Lord, and that he did. The best of men, friends, are men at best. You've heard it said many times. The best of men are men at best. Elijah needed the strength of the Lord, and he's going to get it. Elijah needed dependence on the Lord, and so do you, and so do I. Elijah, in chapter 18, ran because the Lord, it says, uh, uh, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he ran in chapter 18. But in chapter 19, it doesn't say the hand of the Lord came upon him. It just says that Elijah ran for his life. It would seem to me that this was an effort in his own strength, in his own strength, to run, but not in the strength of the Lord. Life can be very, very challenging. Now, I'm going to leave that there. We're going to come back to Elijah because from this point on, another character is introduced. We considered Jezebel. We've considered Elijah, at least his initial response. But there's another character introduced in the story, and then we'll go back and forth with Elijah because he's brought back into the picture, of course. In verse 5, it says this, Then as he, that's Elijah, lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him. An angel touched him. In verse 7, it's going to say that it was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Perhaps a pre-incarnate Lord Jesus. Perhaps a pre-incarnate Son of God that came to touch Elijah. Here was a man who was depressed and discouraged and despondent. Sometimes when I see someone like that and they're whining and they're, 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 they're down in the dumps, I'd, I'd like to kick them and say, get up. You know, what are you doing? But that's not the Lord. The Lord would come by the hand of an angel, perhaps the son of God himself, and touch this man, Elijah. The compassion of the Lord. We considered it this morning and it was already on my mind. The Lord God of heaven who touches the untouchable. Isn't that amazing? The Lord God of heaven is the only one who can or will touch the untouchable. There is a man in Matthew 8. He was a leper. He was an outcast. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. But the Lord Jesus, when he came to him, he reached out and did what no other man would do. And he touched him and he healed him. The compassion of the Lord God of heaven. Here was a man who was down and discouraged. I mean, the Lord, if I were the Lord, I would look at what I just did through you. Look at what just happened. You called down fire from heaven. I mean, what more do you want? And here you are lying, depressed and discouraged. But the Lord Jesus, the Lord God of heaven is compassionate. And so he reaches out and touches him. And then he says to him, arise and eat. And he, that's Elijah, looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. The Lord God of heaven 
provided bread and water to Elijah. Profound. Profound. The Lord God of heaven provided bread and water miraculously to Elijah. It says, so he lay down, so he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, arise and eat. Listen to these words, because the journey is too great for you. That may be the key of this passage. Now, the still small voice is very well known and tremendous. But listen to those words. Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Friends, brothers, sisters, the journey is too great for you. Life is too hard for you. There are too many challenges, too many obstacles, too many difficulties. It's too great for you. But it's not too great for the Lord. But the Lord can do it in you. He can sustain you. And so he arose and he ate and drank again bread and water. It says this, and I'm going to go back to the bread and water. And he, Elijah, went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. He found provision in the Lord. And in the provision, the Lord did miraculous things with him. For 40 days and 40 nights, he went in the strength of that food. But if you think that's a miracle... You should see, you did just see what the God of heaven can do for those who will take the bread of life, the living water. The Lord Jesus came to a woman in John four. She was drawing water from a well. And he said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The miracles that God can do and the lives of those who will feed on the bread of life. John chapter six, the Lord Jesus calls himself the bread of life. John chapter four, he calls himself the living water. Will you feed on the bread of life? Will you drink from the living water? We need it to begin with. To become a Christian, you don't become a Christian. You don't become a child of God without coming to the bread of life, without drinking from the living water. That's what the Lord Jesus was telling this woman who did not know him. Drink from the living water. But brothers and sisters, it's not a one-time thing. It's a daily provision. Just like God sent down manna from heaven every day, they had to go out and pick it up. You and I need to feed on the bread of life and on the living water. Because why? Well, I suppose you could give various answers. But the answer in this text is because the journey is too great for you. The journey is too great for you. You must feed on the bread of life. You must feed on the living water. Only by him can a murderer like Saul of Tarsus become an evangelist. And an apostle. And a Bible writer. Only by the bread of life. And the living water. Can a coward like Gideon. Or Peter. Do great miraculous things. For God. Only by the bread of life. And the living water. 
The word of God is how we feed on him. The word of God is how we feed on him. I encourage you to do so. I want to give another illustration of this. And I was just so thrilled and encouraged. I learned about a prison. Some of you may have heard of it. Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's called Angola. That's what many call it. Been there for years and years and years and years and years. This prison was known to be the bloodiest, most violent prison in the United States about 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Largest maximum security penitentiary in the United States. 5,300 prisoners. 85% are on life without parole. 95% of those that enter Angola will never come out. 95% that go in will die there. 45 on death row. The warden says most of the men here have put somebody in the grave. We've got four types of criminals here. This is what the warden said. Murders, repeat convicted felons. Rapists and armed robbers, violent men. It was so bad that about 20 years ago, this warden, Burl Kane is his name. And I encourage you, look this up, okay? It's just tremendous, tremendous. There's videos on YouTube, there's documentaries. Burl Kane was given the opportunity to come. He had never worked in the prison before, except that he was put into a warden position in a prior prison, taken from that warden position and put into this prison, the most violent in the United States. And when he came in, there are many testimonies. But many say he plastered scripture on the walls of the prison. He began to pipe Christian music into the cells, Bibles for everyone, held Bible studies with the staff. He started a Bible college, gave everyone a job, treated the men strictly, but offered godly things like an opportunity to work and have a job and be productive. There are now multiple churches on that prison site. I read from multiple sources, multiple churches there. The prisoners built them themselves with donated funds. They have a Bible college that many prisoners have graduated from. Many say that it's safer to be in that prison than it is to be in New Orleans. It's been transformed. It's the testimony of many. The Associated Press, many, many have notated this. This man's a devout Christian. And he knew, he said, I listened to him. I cannot change these men from the outside. They need a work of God on the inside. It's the only way. He calls it moral rehabilitation because it fits with all the politics of that system. But he preaches Jesus to them. The prison has actually sent prisoner missionaries into other Louisiana state prisons to be evangelists for Jesus. I read multiple reports of that too. It's tremendous. One preacher, well-known preacher, said that he uh, uh, visited there. And uh, Ravi Zacharias, many of you have probably listened to him a time or two at least. And he's talked about this prison a few times. And he asked a man, so you found Christ here, he said. And the man said, yes. He said, can I ask you a personal question? 
how, do you, how does it feel that you're never going to get out of here? He was on life sentence. And the prisoner said, you know, Mr. Zacharias, I don't even think about that anymore because what I found here has given me a greater freedom than I ever had out there. He said, my greatest prayer is for my parents because they're on the outside and they think they're free, but they're not. They're enslaved. They're imprisoned. The power of the word of God. We just saw it up here today. When Elijah fed on the provision that the Lord gave to him, he went in the strength of that food for 40 days. What a miracle. And what kind of miracle can the Lord do in your life? Listen, the Lord has done miracles in my life. Maybe not the miracles that anyone wants to see on TV. But he's changed my heart. When I have chosen to feed on him, of course, initial salvation, he converted me from death into life and light into darkness into light and all of that. But I'm talking about for the believer. When I choose to feed on his provision, the Lord does miracles. He's done miracles in my life, in my heart. God has actually changed my desires in some cases. It's not just that I've said, No, I'm not going to do that because the scriptures say it's not what I should do. But it's that God has actually worked a change in my heart where things that I longed for, I no longer long for. I'm not saying I've arrived. I have lots of other issues. But I can point to specific things in my life that were a snare to me and a trap to me. And they held me. But when I chose to feed on the word of God, by his grace, it's not me. It's by his grace, just feeding on the the bread of life and the living water. I've had desires changed. Even to stand up here today, like when I was 14, 15, 13, whatever it was, and I began to be asked to stand up front, and I know that some of this is natural, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I mean, I've seen some young of the young boys now recently stand up here, and I, wow, they were tremendous. They read and they did their thing, and it was I was trembling. I could barely get a word out of my mouth. But the Lord has done things in my life. Greater miracles than calling down fire from heaven. Isn't that tremendous? Changed lives like we saw up on the screen here a little while ago. Who else can do that? What greater miracle is there in life than that? A person who was steeped in sin, enslaved to sin but set free by the power of God, by the bread of life, by the living water. It's tremendous. Tremendous the miracles that the Lord can do if we'll feed on his provision. You want to know something, though? Elijah wasn't force-fed. It was presented to him. Here is the provision. Will you take it? The angel didn't stuff it down his mouth. He put it before him. He had the opportunity, the invitation, arise and eat. But he had to arise and eat. And so do you and I. We must arise and eat of the provisions that the Lord gives. And we have a daily provision from the Lord, a tremendous daily provision. The bread of life and the living water to be found in the word of God. It's nothing mystical. I'm not talking about anything mysterious. I'm talking about feeding on the word of God. And finding Jesus there on every page. It's tremendous. So, okay. It says this. 
Uh, and so he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Here he comes. The scripture says it. I didn't say it. It's the mountain of God. But he went there into a cave and he spent the night in that place. Now, it seems reasonable to spend the night in the cave, but I'm only reading the text. And the text says that the Lord came to him and said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, the text already told us that it was the mountain of God. But then it says he went into a cave. Then it says the Lord met him there and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? So near to the presence of God was Elijah. It seemed from the text, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb, as I understand, is also another name for Mount Sinai, where the Lord met with Moses. And I think that's why it says the mountain of God. So near to the presence of God, yet not enjoying the presence of God, at least from the text. And I think that's the reason for the question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing in here? And I ask you, maybe there's somewhere that you are in your life. Maybe there's a routine you've put yourself into, a position, a relationship. Maybe you've made a practice out of going somewhere that you need to hear the voice of God say to you, what are you doing here? This cave, this place of darkness, it's not a place for you. Maybe you need to hear the voice of God say that to you this morning. I've had times in my life, I know, where I've heard the Lord say to me, in not so many words, what are you doing here? This cave is no place for you. But beyond that, I suppose we could ask the question, because here we find ourselves on planet Earth, and I suppose the question would ring just as true, just in general, what do you find yourself doing here on planet Earth? What are you doing here? What's your purpose? What's your goal? What's your ambition? What drives you? What motivates you? What's your purpose? To build big barns? To gain fame and notoriety? What is it? To enjoy pleasure, relaxation, whatever it is? Some of these things are so close to being the blessings of God, but man takes them and goes beyond with it. And they, 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 they end up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Even though some of them are blessings from God. Food is a blessing from God. We need it. But some become gluttons. I could go on. There's many things. Money and so forth is blessing from the Lord. But we can sure go to a degree he doesn't want us to go. So what are you doing here? And then Elijah says this, well, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Elijah is going to repeat the very same thing in verse 14. It almost sounds rehearsed. Um, maybe Elijah in his sulking. This is my observation. Maybe as he lay and ran depressed and agitated and why isn't the Lord doing something? He was rehearsing in his mind. Look at what I've done for the Lord. Look at all I've done for the children of Israel. But they've forsaken it, forsaken the altars, forsaken you, torn down the altars, killed your prophets. And Elijah said, I'm the only one left. You know, it just wasn't true. 
the Lord is going to rebuke Elijah in a few verses. It wasn't true. He wasn't the only one left. But he seemed to have a rehearsed answer here to the Lord. One preacher said, Elijah in his mind was saying, Lord, you better do something about this or you're going to become a nonprofit organization. Silly Bible joke. He was the prophet of God, but he was persecuted and he was despised and rejected and so forth. But the Lord said to him in verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Maybe this is where he should have been. Not in the cave, but standing on the mountain, the mountain of God. And it says, and behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire, a still small voice and listen to this. And it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. The Lord God, not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in the still small voice. It seems to me, albeit you have to dig a little bit to take lessons from this and to see what the Lord was really saying to Elijah. But Elijah had seen some miraculous, powerful displays from God. It makes me wonder, in 1 Kings 18, the people saw this tremendous display of the power of God. And it says that they chanted, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It sounded like repentance. But as I search the text, I'm just not sure whether it was really repentance. Whether the fire really did it. Elijah's testimony was that he was the only one. Well, that wasn't true. But you would think if in chapter 18 the people repented and received God and and claimed the Lord he is God, why was Elijah running for his life? I mean, wouldn't the people dethrone Jezebel and Ahab and realize that these are wicked people, they're not of God? It makes me wonder whether the repentance and the fire was a real repentance or whether it was short-lived. And perhaps the lesson for Elijah, the Lord has been gentle with him. Perhaps the lesson for Elijah, it will not be the wind or the fire or the earthquake, but what is necessary is the still small voice of God speaking to the heart of man. And for you and I, I've said it once, I'm going to say it again. Oftentimes we plead for some kind of miraculous work of God for the heavens to open. The Gospels tell us at one time the heavens did open and God spoke. And you know what some of the people said? Ah, that was just thunder. What's necessary is the still small voice of God speaking to the heart of man. And he does it. Well, he does it through preaching. He does it through evangelism. But ultimately, it's going to be pointing people back to the word of God. 
And it's what you and I need, the word of God. That's why I was so encouraged to have the presentation from the Gideons here this morning. So Elijah was there. It seemed like Elijah had somewhat of an Elijah complex. And we're going to close here momentarily. So the Lord comes to him again and says, what are you doing here? And Elijah repeats his answer. And I'm going to close with this. Verse 15, after Elijah repeats his answer, the Lord says to him, go, go, go. Here was a man who seemed to have a skewed vision all of a sudden of who God was, who God is, and who he was himself. He thought he was the only one. The Lord was going to say, Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. And I find it interesting. You know, the world around us, and forgive me, I'm only being so critical, but the world around us, when the world finds someone who's depressed and discouraged, they may counsel them to believe in themselves. Someone might have come to Elijah and said, listen, let me tell you, you've got to bring up your self-worth. You need to elevate your self-image, Elijah. The world will do that at times. But God's response to Elijah, I'm not saying that all depression is the same. I'm certainly not. But when Elijah was here in this place and he thought that God's work was hanging in the balance only on him and he thought there was no one else left and the people had failed and maybe even God had failed, God's response to him was go. Get up from your sulking. Get up from your self-centeredness and go serve me. Go serve the Lord. Go serve his people. It seems it's often the remedy for those who are self-absorbed Sometimes here in the assembly, we can be that way, you know. We're consumed about what this one said or that one said. And these people are hypocritical. Yes, they are hypocritical. I am too. These people, you don't understand the people at Boulevard. They're dumb. They are dumb. So am I. We're dumb sheep. We are. These people, you don't understand. They don't treat me right and they don't. But the Lord says, go. Go, and he gives them various things to do. Go serve me. Go serve my people. Will you go? Will you feed on him? We have to. The journey is too great for you. The journey is too great for me. May God help us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word again. We are taught from your word. We're instructed. Your word certainly is to us a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path, and we need it. Oh, God, we recognize that life is hard at times. You know that. You sustained Elijah with sleep and provisions of food. Life is very difficult at times. We become weary. You know that we're physical and just just men and women. We fail and we falter, and we're frail people, and life can be very hard. And we know that the journey is too great for us. Help us to remember that the journey is too great for us in our own strength. But we know it's not too great for you, O God. Help us, we pray. Give us strength. And to those who are here this morning that may be struggling, that may be down, depressed, may we be like you and show them compassion. And maybe 
give them a spiritual touch, so to speak. May you give us discernment. Help us to have discernment as we deal with one another to understand, to recognize when encouragement and compassion is necessary or when perhaps exhortation is necessary. Give us discernment. Help us, we pray. Bless us, we pray. We want to be a light for you. Thank you for the Gideons and all the work they're doing. We pray that you would bless them and your word as it goes out throughout the world. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.